I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So guys, Shane is away and we can play. Yeah, but who's going to host? Not it. Susan, you're hosting. I'm a poor man, Shane Harris. (laughs) Then you host, Tammy. Now, look, there's only one of us here who is such a practiced podcast host that they can do it in their sleep. And that's you, Ben. So tag your it. The heir apparent no. to Shane. I object. You better get work on your band name. Oh, all right. I'm going to come up with a good musical number by the end. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security the very low bar edition. I'm not Shane Harris, I'll tell you that much. I am Ben Wittes of Lawfare and the Brookings Institution, and I'm here in the virtual jungle studio with Tamara Wittes of the Brookings Institution, Susan Hennessy of the Brookings Institution and Lawfare, and Chuck Rosenberg, of how do you identify of MSNBC and does some law firm work, but he's here in his great capacity as former Justice Department official. Is that fair, Chuck? Perfectly fair, Ben. So on the show today, the Justice Department under Attorney General Barr is being accused of politicizing law enforcement. A federal appeals court orders a district judge to dismiss the case against Michael Flynn at Barr's request in an example of possible politicization, and Israel is getting ready to annex Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Lawlessness all over. Yeah, I just want to point out when Shane does the introduction, we all interrupt him with lots of banter, and you guys are just letting me talk. This it's is just, not very- it's our reverence for you. We're hanging on to every word. <laughs> oh, that that is probably the best joke we've had on this podcast in a long time. <laughs> all right. You know, I'm just I'm I'm feeling like it's like it's almost like it's lawfare podcasty when Shane's not here. I one person talks at a time, and I don't know. All right, let's talk about politicization of the Justice Department. Susan, let's start with you. We had an email exchange this morning where we were trying to sketch out what the scope of this segment was, and you sent around a a really amazing list of scope of, of the problem. So, Scope it for us. When we talk about Justice Department politicization, what is the universe of stuff we're talking about? Yeah, no, everything's fine. The Justice Department isn't politicized at all. Everything's just totally normal, totally above board. No reason to be worried. Just kidding. Yeah, it's a short segment if you say it that way. It's a complete and total mess. So I was trying to think of how to even sum it up. Um, And I think just going through the Bill Barr sort of highlight reel. So 
you know, travel back with me, listener, to the release of the Mueller report, right? So when Bill Barr, then an attorney general with a reasonable amount of institutional credibility, um, you know, releases this letter about how Mueller has determined that no crimes had been committed, um, you know, in the Mueller report, uh, you know, releases this letter in advance that turns out to be wildly misleading, dramatically misleading, in some in some cases, uh, sort of an exact opposite of uh, of what was actually determined in the Mueller report itself. Uh, I think in retrospect, clearly an attempt to shape the political discourse and the media discourse about uh, Mueller's investigation, not to mention Barr's decision to intervene and make a determination that the president hadn't committed crimes. Um, Fast forward from there. Um, So we have Bill Barr intervening on the Roger Stone sentencing recommendation, uh, something that caused a number of career prosecutors to quit and and Barr sort of had to walk it back a bit whenever Donald Trump was a little too explicit in uh, in his praise uh, in his praise of Barr's politicization. Uh, we have reports from the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office about pressure to bring charges against former uh, FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe uh, in the absence of a, of a factual support for that. Uh, there was the decision to drop the charges against former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn after he had already pleaded guilty. Um, There was the decision to uh, use the Justice Department to attempt to get a temporary restraining order uh, against John Bolton's book, uh, an ill-fated effort. Um, Now there's a similar effort being undertaken uh, to get a restraining order against Mary Trump, uh, the president's niece, who has a book coming out and has apparently signed some form of NDA. Um, There's the bizarre role that Bill Barr played in the clearing of Lafayette Square. Um, You know, the the uh, firing of chemical irritants against uh, peaceful protesters. Uh, Bill Barr sort of um, apparently giving that order, then then not having done it, then going on television to uh, defend the president and also sort of somewhat bizarrely suggest that pepper spray is not a chemical. Um, we have the entire existence and presentation of the John Durham investigation into the Russia investigation, where Bill Barr, uh, despite the previous uh, shock and horror that anybody would discuss an ongoing investigation when it came to, of course, Comey's comments uh, regarding the Clinton investigation, Bill Barr apparently happy to discuss an open investigation by offering these sort of oblique hints that something really, really terrible is coming. I think it was just this week, he, he suggested that he thinks Durham's going to have some really significant findings sometime in September, conveniently a little bit before the presidential election. Last week, at the end of last week, we had the announced resignation of the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, um, only to have Jeffrey Berman then say, wait a minute, I didn't resign. I don't know what Bill Barr's talking about. Um, And then have Bill Barr actually fire Berman uh, to remove him as the head of the Southern District of New York um, on very, very bizarre uh, sort of suggestion that he just wants to install the head of the SEC in that position five months before an election. 
somebody with no prosecutorial experience whatsoever. In today's hearing, there was allegations, sort of uh, almost background low-level uh, allegations of politicization that Barr was directing investigations into the marijuana industry based on his ideological opposition to legalized marijuana, that he uh, directed investigations into an anti-pollution act that the state of California had entered into with various uh, auto manufacturers. Um, and so, look, this is a, um, a course of conduct you might say, um, in which I think, you know, look, it's relatively clear that Bill Barr is pursuing and using the Department of Justice to pursue investigations that are in the president of the United States's political interest. And he appears to be smart enough to know how to pursue those interests without explicit coordination from the White House, or at least that's likely, although not necessarily clear. Um, and the president of the United States, of course, has been perfectly open about his position from the very beginning when he called it, quote, the saddest thing that he couldn't do whatever he wanted with the Department of Justice, sort of um, bemoaning his ill fortune of having the relatively principled Jeff Sessions as his attorney general. You know, I, I think what has happened in this case is um, President Trump has gotten the attorney general of his dreams, and, and that's Bill Barr. And uh, Bill Barr is perfectly happy to go about sort of carrying out the president's political favors, you know, sort of consequences to the Justice Department in the long term. Be damned, I guess. Chuck, uh, how do you assess the degree of politicization that Barr is alleged to have or or that Susan's list suggests that Barr has engaged in. What did you make of the hearing today at which, as Susan describes, both one of Mueller's former prosecutors, Zelensky, and uh, an antitrust enforcer named John Elias testified and made allegations of politicization, but also a former Attorney General Mike McKaysey testified and described Barr's tenure as you know, in the highest tradition of depoliticizing the Justice Department, even as uh, former Deputy Attorney General Ayer described it as the polar opposite. Who's right? And how do you prioritize the uh, the issues that Susan raised? Well, Susan Hennessy is right. She makes a much more compelling case uh, than former uh, Attorney General Mukasey. Uh, as she was going through her list, each of the um, items she uh, iterated brought back a bad memory or two. You know, a couple of observations, Ben, on the hearing today. First, if anybody listening uh, to this uh, recording had any you know, thought about becoming a member of Congress, watching the hearing today should cure them of that. It was um, deeply disappointing and par for the course. But wait, Chuck, don't you think that gets people to watch and say, I could do that? Any idiot could do it. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. I I think that's exactly right. But I'm hard pressed to to think of why I would want to be one of those idiots. Look, I can be pretty stupid on my own. I don't need 434 people to help me. But that proceeding was um, deeply dismaying. You know, I I know a lot of folks have focused on Aaron Zelinsky, and I don't know him personally, but I know him by reputation, and it's a fine reputation. And the interference that he described uh, in the prosecution of the Stone case is troubling, to say the least. 
But I actually want to focus on um, Mr. Elias, the career prosecutor from the antitrust division. You know, Stone is a friend of the president. And it seems clear to me, as Susan articulated, uh, that the attorney general and the president interfered on Stone's behalf to help him. But arguably, other than the Justice Department and the system of justice and the rule of law, no individual was hurt. That's not the case. That's quite an other than, I might add, Chuck. It's the only way I can segue to my second point, Ben. Um, So let me have this one. When you open an unfounded investigation, as Elias described, you are hurting other people. Um, Maybe you are precluding mergers that should have gone through. Uh, Maybe in some industry, uh, you are hurting shareholders or employees. There's any number of people who are hurt. The notion that um, these investigations were both unfounded and initiated, uh, I find uh, also deeply troubling. You know, it's sort of ironic to me. One of the complaints that Bill Barr and his minions made about the Flynn investigation was that it was not adequately predicated, which, by the way, is ludicrous. It was more than adequately predicated. It would have been a dereliction of duty not to conduct that counterintelligence investigation. And here today, from the antitrust attorney, from Mr. Elias, we hear about direction to open up cases that are unfounded, put another way, that aren't predicated. You know, at the very least, and the marijuana um, industry is a bit of a distraction here. People are talking about it, but it could be the sneaker industry or the hospital industry or the airline industry. It doesn't matter. When you open cases that are unfounded, you are causing heartache and pain and financial cost to um, you know these companies and their employees. Companies have to hire lawyers. Lawyers have to do document review. They have to produce documents to the government. That's a lengthy, time-consuming, expensive process. And so uh, I've always hated what happened uh, in the Stone case. And I think Mr. Zielinski articulated it well. But if you really think about what Elias was describing, that should send uh, chills down your spine. So I think that's kind of where I want to pick up because... I had been thinking, quite honestly, up until this point, I'd been thinking about Bill Barr's role as an enabler of the president in the sense of using his authority as attorney general um, and the mandate given him by the president to help the president get out of scrapes, to help the president's friends get out of scrapes. But now we seem to be seeing something more than that, which is a proactive use of the Justice Department to go after enemies or perceived enemies of the president. So that's that's not protective. That is aggressive, right? Abuse of rule of law in the categories of abuse of rule of law. It is a different category and, and one that is more troubling, one that's much more corrosive of our democratic system. And so I, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Do you think that that's an accurate understanding? But secondly, I guess I sort of like, as a citizen, my reaction to the hearing is, so what? Like, what's the remedy here? We're in the last uh, few months before a presidential election. Nobody's going to impeach Bill Barr, even though he clearly richly deserves it. What's the purpose of this hearing? He's not going to be cowed by any of this. Uh, He's clearly quite shameless and indeed self-righteous 
in his approach to this stuff. So like, what's, what is the remedy? Is there a remedy? It, it dawns on me for the first time in that a congressional hearing has to have a purpose. Uh, I often seen hearings. Uh, <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Point without one. But, uh, but I will say this, look, I, I agree with you. Uh, Bill Barr isn't going to be impeached. The election is almost around the corner and um, there's much to fix. But I still think these stories are important. And maybe it's just that. They're just stories and we can't act on them. But for me to know after a lifetime professionally in the Department of Justice uh, that things are happening today that I have never seen before, uh, politically directed investigations uh, of industries that uh, the attorney general doesn't particularly like if Elias is to be believed, I think those stories need to be told. And as citizens, you can decide what you want to do with it. And perhaps the answer is nothing. You you watch for a while and you change the channel and that's okay. But I'm glad I know that. I mean, it makes me sick, but I'm glad I know that. I have never, and I should, I should be very clear, I've never seen anything like that. And I think your analogy to a sort of a sword and shield is apt, uh, that they, they were using the shield of the Justice Department uh, for Flynn and Stone. They're using the sword of the Justice Department, and it is a mighty sword for industries that are disfavored. And uh, people ought to know that. Yeah, so I think we should acknowledge sort of picking up on, on Tammy's what I, I think is the um, in sort of assumption inherent in Tammy's question, which is really identifying the new danger of the moment that we're currently in. And, and that's that we now have an attorney general who is brazenly, openly political and not even really trying to hide it. A Congress that has made clear it has no appetite or interest in actually impeaching him, you know, sort of regardless of the merits of that decision, they clearly aren't going to do it. And Justice Department employees that have clearly decided this is not worth resigning over. Um, and so, you know, we can evaluate a lot of the red lines that have been passed over the past two years um, and and. and for me personally, expressed some shock um, that those were events that wouldn't have triggered mass resignation. Um, but at this point, we're five months away from the election. Um, we're headed into a recession, uh, if not an, an eventual depression. Um, there's a massive pandemic going on. Certainly no one inside DOJ is thinking, you know, look, this is really the moment to make the stand of a principled resignation. Um, and those who have made principled resignations, it hasn't had much of a difference. And so we're in a moment in which all of our assumptions about what would check the behavior of the of a sort of runaway Department of Justice have been proven wrong. And so I, I do think there's sort of there's two questions. One is, what the hell happens for the next five months or until January if, if Donald Trump is voted out of office? And then a separate question of assuming Donald Trump doesn't win re-election, how do we even begin to go about restoring the damage? Because we certainly can't just go back to saying, well, don't worry about it, because all those checks of good people and culture and principled resignations, um, you know, that that's really what's going to hold the line. So I want to come back to Chuck with a cultural question, which is one of the things that struck me about this hearing is that everybody's accusing everyone else of exactly the same thing. So the response of the Jim Jordans and Doug Collinses is not, as McKay argued, no, Bill Barr didn't 
uh, isn't politicizing things. It's what about so-and-so? What about Obama doing X? What about, you know, he's undoing the politicization that your side did. And it's on one hand, it's a, just an example of sort of whataboutism. But on the other hand, I, I do think they actually believe it. I, I do think they everybody believes that the other side is doing the dangerous thing and that they are the line against it. And in that kind of polarized environment, uh, the department is really caught in the middle. And so my and a lot of people get cynical about things that Zelensky and Elias were saying, which is, you know, we don't do politics. When we show up as career officials, we check our politics at the door. And so my question is, you know, first of all, how much of that ethos is verbiage that you say at congressional hearings and to what extent is it real? And secondly, how do you restore it in an environment in which nobody believes in it? Yeah, so I can only talk about my experience, Ben, but in my experience, uh, the ethos is real. I mean, all my time as an assistant U.S. attorney, I don't remember ever having a single conversation about politics ever with anyone. In fact, I remember once walking through our parking lot, we had a covered parking uh, in our building next to the courthouse in Alexandria. And somebody must have driven a spouse's car to work. I don't know whose car it was. I don't know who the spouse was, but there was a bumper sticker for a particular candidate on the car. And I did a double take uh, because not only had we never discussed politics in the office, um, it seemed sort of jarring to me to see a bumper sticker for a candidate on a car in our garage. Now, that may seem odd to people. They may not believe it, to your second question. Uh, there's not much I can do about that. I know what it's like to work there. I had never been asked I ha as an assistant U.S. attorney to do anything for political reasons. And as a U.S. attorney, I had never asked anyone to do something for political reasons. And I never had a conversation. So, you know, some folks will are cynical. Uh, some folks are skeptical. And some folks will believe it. I can't do much uh, for the cynics, I can try to reach the skeptics, but that is the way it is in the Department of Justice that I know. All right, let's take a burrow down into a specific example of alleged politicization, which is that this morning, as we were preparing for this uh, episode, the D.C. Circuit ruled in the case of Michael Flynn uh, let me just set this up with a very brief procedural history because it's kind of complicated. Uh, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but here's what happened. The Justice Department, in one of these examples of potential politicization, I'll lay my cards on the table, I think a glaring one, asked for the dismissal of the Michael Flynn case after securing a plea from him. The judge had questions about it, appointed an amicus to argue the other side, and Flynn's lawyers, with the support of the Justice Department, went up to the D.C. Circuit, got a very favorable panel, and asked that panel to order the judge to dismiss the case without further proceedings. Today, the D.C. Circuit panel 
granted that on a two to one vote in an opinion written by a judge, Naomi Rao, who is recently appointed to the court by none other than Donald Trump. So, Chuck, let me start with you here. When we, you and I last talked about this case, which was on the Lawfare podcast, we both agreed that the judge would probably eventually have to dismiss the matter, but that he would certainly get to ask questions along the way and really hold the government's feet to the fire about why it took this seemingly very political step. The D.C. Circuit now seems to be saying that he doesn't even get to ask questions. How do you understand this decision? Is it going to stand or is this just a function of a highly eccentric panel and it will go the way of the dodo when the full court uh, actually considers this case? Ben, I don't understand the decision. I'm a very simple lawyer. Rule 48 um, requires that for the government to dismiss a case, uh, it must do so with leave of court. Leave of court to me means leave of court. It means permission. And so in order for a court to grant permission, it seems axiomatic that it must be able to ask some questions and to satisfy itself that um, the government is seeking dismissal for an appropriate reason. That doesn't mean a far-reaching inquiry, but it means some inquiry. And the circuit court, uh, the circuit court of appeals has cut that short. So I don't understand the opinion. It strikes me as wrong. It also is not definitively over because uh, either Judge Sullivan or the court itself, the circuit court itself, uh, can uh, ask for it to be reheard. But if it's not dead, it's pretty close to dead. Susan, how do you understand this case in interaction with the discussion we just had? The D.C. Circuit seems to be saying here that we have to presume that all is right with the Justice Department and they're just looking at this on the merits, even where we kind of know that there's something else going on. You know, Flynn is somebody the president has spoken publicly about. There simply isn't a record that justifies the department's reversal of its decision to bring this case. And yet the D.C. Circuit says the judge kind of doesn't even get to look behind the Justice Department's stated reasons for wanting to dismiss it. Is this the D.C. Circuit blessing the politicization or is this the D.C. Circuit just saying, you know, the Justice Department is a coordinate branch of government and we don't we don't get involved in their decisions about whom to prosecute or not. Yeah, so look, I I think this opinion, to the extent that it stands, is deeply connected to the prior question in that the core of it is essentially saying, even when there is plain evidence and plain testimony of politicized decisions and illegitimately politicized decisions, uh, the federal courts have no authority to interrogate that as a matter of sort of safeguarding the proceedings and the integrity of the proceedings before the court. Um, so so really, the, the decision stands for this idea that it's not the place of the courts to second guess and thus sort of removes that as, a, as sort of a, a secondary oversight mechanism. Look, I, I am somebody who happens to be um, rather skeptical of Judge Rao, um, who has, uh, in this case and in many other cases, I think authored opinions that are 
you know, really pretty legally indefensible. And a true cynic might suggest opinions that were not designed to express a good faith uh, uh, judgment on the law, but instead to be sort of an audition for a uh, narrowing window of an upcoming Supreme Court seat to the extent that there was one. Um, so I, I don't think that we need to we need to sort of probe the motives much more deeply than that. This is a, a very, very weak opinion. And the idea that uh, the presumption of regularity extends in the face of the existing record and and extends to sort of mandamus review, it just kind of doesn't hold up. And I would be surprised if it didn't go on bonk and if it wasn't actually ended up um, being reviewed. I lose. I was really hoping we could get through today's episode without the word mandamus. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to do it. You, uh, you hurt me, Susan. You know, I, I am willing to extend a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt to uh, Judge Henderson's uh, sort of, I don't know, concurrence or, or agreement. Um, you know, she she had a series of questions during the oral arguments that had made people think, you know, she was um, uh, very skeptical of the government's position um, and, and then ultimately sort of came down with Rao here. And basically what Henderson sort of seems to be persuaded on is this idea that this just isn't the federal court's job. And that even if what Judge Sullivan is doing is procedurally defensible and sort of within the various pieces of his jurisdiction, the larger aim here is about not liking a just a decision that the Justice Department is entitled to drop charges. And this is sort of intended to, to be kind of a form of oversight. And so I, I confess, um, even though I am horrified by the level of politicization, I think it's really, really damaging to the nation in the long term. I have, I think, as we've talked about on this podcast before, been pretty uncomfortable with sort of the proceedings here and thought that even though I, I think Judge Sullivan is clearly right on the legal merits here and, and, and Rao's opinion is clearly wrong, I, I kind of agree with the core of it, which is that oversight is Congress's job and deciding who to charge and who to continue to bring charges against is the Department of Justice's job. And if we get into a situation in which the court is using sort of these these technical questions to second guess that, my discomfort is that I can pretty easily come up with some really, really unsettling uh, hypotheticals for how this could be applied in the future. And so I, I think this this opinion is indefensible on its face. It's going to have lots of consequences for the government long term and for the courts long term. And yet I, I, I a little bit, I think that there is sort of a, a core objection there that we have to take seriously because, because I do think that there is a serious sort of kernel of discomfort in what the court is saying. You know, I'd I think Susan's right. You know, oversight is for Congress and uh, charging decisions and I guess therefore decisions to end a prosecution are for the executive branch. But the court completely ignored Rule 48. Leave of court has to mean something. I agree it should be limited, but it has to mean something. Let me just make two other points. Uh, one of them is my Eastern District of Virginia bias talking. Uh, there was absolutely no excuse. I think, for Judge Sullivan not to have sentenced uh, Mr. Flynn in uh, 2018 and for this case to have been in our rearview mirror. Amen. No reason it should have taken this long. I think that was a disgrace, and that's on him. Number two, 
There's a much more principled way to end this case if that's what the president wanted to do. And he could have pardoned uh, Michael Flynn. And all of this subterfuge, all of, the, all of these gimmicks, right, all of the undermining they did of the rule of law is going to leave a um, deep and ugly scar. The principled thing to do, although it would have been highly unprincipled, would have been to pardon Flynn and get on with it. And so I, I really don't understand this in several different ways, but the fact that I don't understand something is par for the course. That's how I go through life. You know, I, Chuck, I feel like that that is precisely um, what's at issue here is that for the president, it's not enough to let his buddy off uh, without prison time. He wants this whole thing to be delegitimized. He wants uh, he wants Flynn to be understood to be innocent. And a pardon doesn't accomplish that. But having the case dismissed does. I think that's why, you know, Barr yanked the indictments of the of the Russians that Mueller indicted. I, you know, the whole the whole objective here is to make the entire Russia investigation illegitimate and all of its outcomes wiped away. And that's why he won't just pardon him. Oh, Tammy, I think you're exactly right. Um, and you can add that to the list that Susan had compiled earlier about all of the things that Barr has done to let down the Department of Justice. Add this to the list, that he fails to defend the institution that he is in charge of, that he doesn't speak up on behalf of the rule of law. He doesn't defend its special agents or its AUSAs. He lets us all suffer in relative silence. But I think you're right. He, uh, the president wants to delegitimize the process. This is a way to do it. I think they got lucky uh, on this one because it was a combination of a judge uh, dithering on the case and a weird circuit court opinion that seems to um, cut in the attorney general's favor. But it's not quite dead. We shall see. Chuck Rosenberg, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for putting up with me. <laughs> Hey guys, in this true spirit of Shane Harris, I have a great segue for you. Please. And now for something completely different. Uh, no, cop out. Completely different. Let's talk about Israeli annexation of West Bank territories. Um, you can undermine the rule of law at home and abroad. Ooh, connective tissue. All right, Tammy. While we've all been focusing on the coronavirus, you know, and the undermining of American democracy and police shootings and rallies in Tulsa, Oklahoma, without masks and without enough people there to actually communicate the virus, um, the Trump administration seems to have been moving full steam ahead, not on controlling the coronavirus, but on working with the Israeli government to enable Israel to annex territory in the West Bank. And we're increasingly hearing alarm bells from Arab governments, from Europeans, and from voices in the United States. All that, of course, is in addition to the alarmed voices of Palestinians. So why is this happening now? And will it, in fact, bring a disaster to the Middle East? Or are the critics hyperventilating as they have sometimes done about impending disasters like the move of the embassy to Jerusalem in the past. Yeah, so I'll 
come back in a minute to the question of impending disaster, because I think that sometimes, especially on decisions of such strategic consequence, I would say historical consequence, the disaster can be a slow moving one rather than a dramatic crash and burn. And so it's important to define your criteria properly. But first, what's going on? What's going on is that after three rounds of elections in Israel over the last year, uh, Israel finally uh, put together a new government, a government that brought together Prime Minister Netanyahu remaining in the top seat with his primary rivals, uh, the Blue and White Party. And part of the coalition agreement that these two guys, Netanyahu and Benny Gantz, forged allows the government to bring forward for a vote in the parliament as early as June 1st, a law that would extend Israeli sovereignty to territory in the West Bank. In other words, that would annex territory in the West Bank to Israel. This is congruent with the proposals put forward by President Trump in January although it's not yet clear whether it it will be done in a way that's fully consistent with that plan. Now, Trump's proposal was to allow the Israelis to annex territory now, as long as the Israelis would agree to leave the rest of the territory as is for a period of four years, in which the Palestinians might be able to negotiate with the Israelis and fulfill a set of conditions to achieve statehood in what's left over. Now, what's left over is not really a viable territory for a sovereign state. And the Trump plan gives the Israelis such a degree of control over Palestinian access and movement that it's hard to describe what would be left as a sovereign state. And so the Trump plan is understood by everybody except its authors as a plan for a Palestinian state in name only. So what that means in practice is that the Trump administration and the Netanyahu government agree on the idea that Israel can undertake a unilateral land grab uh, of territory that is disputed and that the Israelis had previously agreed to negotiate the disposition of with the PLO. Hence the undermining of the rule of law. This is a signed agreement between Israel and the PLO that this land uh, would be disposed of in a negotiation. Um, so it's it would be a direct violation of the Oslo Accords. Uh, and this is where we get to the question of impending disaster. If the Oslo Accords are annulled or violated to this extent by Israel, the Palestinian Authority has said that they will consider their obligations under the Oslo Accords also void. And that means that they will quit acting as the sort of governing authority for Palestinians resident in the West Bank, begging the question, what happens then if there's no more Palestinian authority, no more Palestinian police force, no more Palestinian uh, school system, no more Palestinian housing authority, you know, then Israel is left uh, de facto uh, responsible for all of the Palestinian residents of the West Bank. In other words, full occupation resumes. So, Tammy, you've cautioned in the past to not evaluate every move in the Middle East through a sort of U.S.-centric lens. So I'm going to do exactly that, but in the form of a question. Please, go ahead. <laughs> Which is... I'm going to ignore your advice. Um, so 
which is why now? Is this about just the natural evolution or devolution of negotiations between the Israelis and the Palestinians and domestic political pressures uh, and political pressures on Netanyahu? Or is this about Donald Trump being way down in the polls and potentially being voted out of office? And so Netanyahu seeing an opportunity to make moves and establish certain facts on the ground at a moment in which the U.S. is not going to be a significant opposition or really a significant force at all. Am I just so committed to my U.S. centricity that I'm like missing the story here? Or is is this about seizing on this opportunity that might not exist when Donald Trump is gone? I think that definitely is a big part of the calculation. I think that you know, the bulk of the calculation is that, yes, Netanyahu thinks he can do this now. He can do it with having constructed a consensus in the Israeli political system by forming this coalition with Benny Gantz. Um, so he's essentially um, defanged the political opposition, the Israeli left that truly deeply, madly opposes annexation is shrunk to... I don't know what, uh, 15 or 16 seats um, maximum in the current parliament. So there isn't any organized political opposition that can stop this in the Israeli system. And yes, on the American side, all of a sudden he has a government, an American administration that rather than handcuffing him is basically saying, yeah, man, go for it, annex. Um, And so that makes it possible. And now, all of a sudden, as Netanyahu contemplates that he may in a few months face a different kind of American administration, and candidate Biden has said that he opposes Israeli annexation and wants Israel to stop threatening to annex, you know, he he may feel a real sense of urgency that he better do this now. And if he has to deal with President Biden, he can give President Biden a fait accompli rather than have President Biden try to deter him from something that, at the ideological level at least, would be a complete game changer in the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Now, on the flip side of that is all the risk, the risk of collapse of the Palestinian Authority, the risk of undermining the peace treaty between Israel and Jordan, the risk of cutting short a process, slow process of normalization between Israel and the Arab states of the Gulf, Um, the risk of diverting attention from the threat of the Iranian nuclear program at a moment when the Europeans and Americans have to come together in New York and decide whether to maintain an arms embargo on Iran. Strategically, as a matter of foreign policy, this is an incredibly risky move. And I think the only reason that he's interested in going forward and doing it is his sense that it might be now or never. All right. I want to ask, uh, pose a different question about this, which is how much does it really matter? And let me say, I think the answer to this question is that it matters a lot, but it matters in ways that are a little bit more subtle than the way it seems, because this does not actually convey 
no settlement is going to be built because of this. The settlements are already there. Israel is not going to seize land, as I understand it, as a part of this. So what this really is, is the Israeli formal application of Israeli civil law to significant cities it has already built. And so my question is, and and in the context of the negotiations, there was never really a serious possibility that these settlements were going to be dismantled and abandoned or conveyed to Palestinian sovereignty. So why shouldn't we understand this or should we understand this as changing a kind of legal status quo without changing any real facts on the ground? And if you ever have an Israeli government and a Palestinian government that want to negotiate a two-state solution, it doesn't really materially affect their ability to do it. It just changes the kind of baseline expectations a little bit. So I think there's a technical answer to your question And then there's a more fundamental answer to your question. The technical answer to your question is it does change the status quo in a couple, at least, fundamental ways. Number one is not all of the territory to which the Trump proposal would allow Israel to extend sovereignty is territory where there are large Israeli communities. The Jordan Valley, for example, has almost no Israeli communities. It does have 65,000 Palestinians who would then be under permanent Israeli control, but Israel has said it would not be offering them citizenship. Well, then what on earth is their status? Non-resident subjects of a democratic Israeli government? That does not compute. So that's a fundamental change in the status quo. There's also a a meaningful change in the status quo for the so-called outposts. These are Israeli settlements in very remote areas that were established illegally under Israeli law. The Israeli courts have ruled them to be illegal. Netanyahu previously had committed to dismantling them. This would legalize them retroactively. That is a fundamental change in the status quo. But none of that, I think, is as important as the underlying fundamental change that unilateral annexation represents. It is a declaration of intent. We can say that the Oslo process failed to yield a final uh, conflict-ending agreement. We can say that it failed to adequately address the fundamental needs of both sides, and it definitely ran out of steam. And it definitely was kept alive far longer than it was producing results that worked for Israelis and especially for Palestinians. Nonetheless, at the heart of the Oslo Accords is mutual recognition between Israel and the PLO as, you know, the Israeli government and the PLO as the representatives of the national interests and national rights of their respective peoples and an agreement to negotiate their dispute. What unilateral annexation is fundamentally is a declaration of changed intent. It's Israel saying, no, we have no intention of settling this dispute by negotiating with the Palestinians. Our intent is to impose an outcome on the Palestinians that they will have to live with. And it is reasonable to expect that if Israel makes that declaration of intent, that every other party with a stake in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict 
will change their own behavior and their own intentions in response. And um, that, to me, is where we have to talk about impending disaster, not because there will be a sudden, you know, outburst of violence, but because Palestinians, Jordanians, Egyptians, Muslims around the world will understand that Israel's intent is to impose a subject reality on Palestinians forever. So, Tammy, are you saying you don't think Jared Kushner's going to win the Nobel Peace Prize? <laughs> no, no, he was only doing it for his daddy-in-law. It was going to be Trump's Nobel Prize, but he might just have to wait a few more years. He might just win the Darwin Award instead. Keep at um, it, sport. You'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Time for object lessons. Uh, Susan, what you got for us? So I have an object lesson that is a sort of Ben Wittes-themed object lesson. And this is a tweet uh, that was going around from CBS News. And it's a little video of uh, the, the Opera House in Barcelona um, reopening its doors for the first time in three months to hold a concert for an audience of nearly 2,300 houseplants. And I think this is Ben Wittes's long-term jungle studio goal just Sophia Yan playing to a bunch of houseplants. Um, I got to tell you, Susan, when I saw that, I thought, wow, somebody's put my, like, two of my passions, like chamber music and houseplants, um, <laughs> you know, grouped together in a studio. It's finally setting. happening <laughs> for you. It's kind of like I was really moved by it in a totally non-joking way. Just add a belt sander and a router and you'll have the complete set of Ben hobbies. Just if rational security listeners want a glimpse of the future, this is the clip. There it is laid out before you. All right, Tammy, what's your object lesson? My object lesson is courtesy of a, a rational security listener. I do not know this person's name. They go by the Twitter handle... MX's Jerfet. Um, <laughs> but I think it was a couple of weeks ago when we were discussing the distressing events of the of June 1st and 2nd that I uttered this phrase, but Jerfet has tweeted this quote from me uh, from Rational Security along with a, a gif that is so cute that I think this might just be my epitaph. Like, I think this is going to go on my tombstone with the animation. Um, <laughs> apparently, I said, I'm not shocked. I'm just grimly disappointed in a fairly consistent manner. <laughs> and I think that probably does describe my mood most days pretty well. So thank <laughs> you, Jerfet. Awesome. All right, I've got two object lessons. The first one is very brief. Look, I don't normally do product endorsements, and I want to say that I have no financial relationship with the company Supernatural uh, or any other relationship with them, except that we've exchanged Twitter pleasantries. But as part of my newfound interest in virtual reality, I have discovered the most incredible workout system I have ever used. Oh, come on. This is just a toy. This is a toy that you're saying is a workout system in order to justify it. Try it. <laughs> Just try it. It is a uh, workout program available on Oculus 
called Supernatural. And I promise you, it will take your breath away in more ways than one, both literally, literally and figuratively. And it is very hard to describe, but uh, as somebody who has done a lot of different kinds of working out, this is the best I have seen for people stuck at home who have about as much space as a yoga mat. And it is a, it is a dramatic breakthrough from my point of view in what you can do on a mat at home uh, in cardiovascular workouts. So that is my first object lesson. My second object lesson is a shout out to Tammy and my old friend, Noah Efron, who has been running for a long time a podcast called uh, The Promised Podcast, which is a podcast about Israeli culture and politics. It is published out of Tel Aviv. And I had occasionally listened to it, uh, uh, mostly when Tammy had it on, until recently when I started listening to it in connection with the elections and the coronavirus in Israel and uh, other stuff. It is fabulous and just deep and rich on a variety of different fronts, uh, rich uh, politically as uh for people who are interested in uh, Israeli political culture, but also super interesting culturally. Uh, And uh, uh, Noah and his colleagues on the show just do a remarkable job. So, and the the tone of it is actually kind of weirdly similar to rational security, actually. It sounds like uh, good friends sitting around shooting the shit. Discussing depressing topics with good humor. Yes, exactly. Only they do a lot more music than we do. And so I just wanted to uh, to give a shout out to it, partly because it is going to set up something I am going to do in the closing credits, which brings us in a perfect segue Ta-da! to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. And because Shane isn't here, he doesn't have to make some silly joke about where you can get rational security merch, which you can get at thelawfarestore.com. And this is the first time we've ever gotten through that without a silly joke. Um, I'm sure he's making a silly joke somewhere. Yeah. Our audio engineer uh, this episode is the long-suffering Zachary Frank of uh, of the firm Goat Rodeo. You should rate us You should share us on social media. And when you go to rate us, and here is the part where I want to give another shout out to Noah Efron. Noah does this wonderful thing on the Promise Podcast to get people to rate the Promise Podcast. He creates a prompt when you go. So when you go to Apple iTunes store to leave a a review of Rational Security, you might begin it as follows. When the Justice Department is reduced to a pile of rubble in the post-apocalyptic hellscape of the remains of our society, you won't hear the bedraggled survivors who emerge from that building on Pod Save America. You won't hear them on Radiolab, and you won't hear them on The Daily. You won't even hear them on This American Life. You'll hear them on Rational Security because... And then you fill in your review. This episode was produced and edited by Jen Potya Howell. 
And our music was composed by Bill Barr and his backup band formed entirely of Israeli settlers. The band is called Acts of God, which is sometimes goes by its Latin name, Opus Dei, but it just as often goes by its Hebrew name, Ma'aseh El, except sometimes it goes by its Chinese glish name, Sophia Yan. We will be back next week and Shane will be back in the moderator's chair where he is so comfortable and I am so uncomfortable and he does these things so mellifluously and I do not. And until then, see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.